Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Imagine a world where everyone, regardless of their background, income, or geographic location, has equal access to bank accounts, loans, and capital. Well, that's the promise of financial inclusion, a concept that goes beyond mere transactions. It's about empowerment, dignity, and unlocking opportunities for billions. Well, AI has, of course, thrown a bit of a wrench into the conversation as two great trends collide. On the one hand, criticisms of technology and its impact on competition, and on the other, the scramble for AI to level the playing field for communities traditionally sidelined in the financial system. So I wanted to dig a bit deeper, and to do so, I could think of no one better suited to help than Siki Ballard, the founder of BetaBank, who wowed so many of you during DC FinTech Week. He's the guy who foiled the Small Business Administration as part of his business plan to create better and more equitable lending models just to run into delays with the FDIC because his business leveraged phones and not branches. So as we enter a political season where emerging technologies and economic opportunity will be more certain to be prominent, I want to give our listeners a treat. First, you'll get a look back to Siki's DC FinTech Week interview as we delve into the math and science of inclusion. And then we'll look to the present and how some of the woes we've seen in banking might illustrate the need to start thinking a bit more about the future. You want to know how to rhyme? You better learn how to add. It's mathematics. Mighty most definitely. It's simple mathematics. Check it out. I'm a around science. What are we talking about here? I am delighted to begin that conversation in a bit of a speed round on pound per pound, one of the most interesting conversations for today uh, with Siki Ballard. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about technology. We're going to talk a little bit about community banks, something that I've always tried to focus on and to bring attention to here over at DC FinTech Week. But first, Siki, maybe you can tell us a little bit about like banks and banking and technology and just a little snippet of your, of your journey. Sure. My name is Siki Bellard, everyone. Um, I'm the founder of Beta Bank. We are a de novo commercial bank focused on uh, small businesses, and our mission is to provide fair access to capital to all small businesses. Um, our origin um, really is inspired by my father's story. Uh, he is a pulpwood uh, logger. When I was a kid, he owned a company. People would pay him to clear commercial and residential property. He'd take the lumber, sell it to the local paper mill, he grew a very successful small business when I was a kid, but he wanted to expand this business to surrounding states. And the only way that he could do that was to go uh, secure financing so that he could upgrade his equipment to be able to make the long haul trip. Uh, and so he went to a number of banks in the area, 13 to be exact, applying for small business loans and was denied by every single bank. And his hypothesis was that those denials had less to do with the merit of his business and its ability, capacity to take on debt and more to do with the color of his skin. And, um, uh, you know, after doing some research, uh, particularly from the Federal Reserve, um, what I found was that all things being equal, meaning same balance sheet, same income statement, same cash flow, really you're the same financially. 
um, uh, black-owned businesses are about 2.7 times more likely to be denied a small business loan. In the event that they are approved for the loan, they'll pay about 180 basis points more in interest for that loan. Uh, this is actually true across all forms of debt financing. Uh, and if you imagine in the US, the two primary ways of building wealth are through home ownership and um, enterprise. So if you have a harder time getting a loan to uh, purchase a starter home, uh, or if you have a harder time getting a loan to acquire a factory to be able to grow your business, you can already start to play out how it becomes a lot more difficult to build wealth over time and across generations. And so you just decided to start a bank? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, I thought it was a solvable problem. Um, you know, I just imagined my dad going into the banks, presumably after a hard work day in his, you know, grungy clothes, sitting across the table from a banker who wasn't just evaluating what was written on paper about the merit of his business, but they were looking at him. You know, they were applying uh, so-called character tests, uh, making subjective determinations as to whether he looked trustworthy or whether he fit whatever archetype they had in their mind of what a successful business person looks like. Uh, and frankly, that's the opportunity for bias to introduce itself. It, it, it plays in similar dynamics for women-owned businesses as well. Um, and so my view was the way you solve this problem is by removing the human from the equation and basing your assessment of credit risk um, exclusively on observable financial and operating data about that business. Um, I was uh, employed at Amazon at the time, which is one which of I possible. total coincidence. <laughs> total, total coincidence. coincidence. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> total coincidence. Um, but you know, uh, Amazon taught me a lot about. Um, how you can leverage data and technology to drive efficiency and automation. Um, banking, frankly, is in the stone ages with respect to uh, data and technology. Uh, and so I thought there was a pretty big opportunity there to be able to address this problem that my father and so many other small businesses experience. You know, it's, I mean, we, we talked very, very briefly and I, I felt like it was, it, we, we will have many, many more conversations later, but I try to tell people, you know, when it comes to addressing that wealth gap uh, in the United States, I mean, the way you build wealth is, is, is by, yeah, you know, owning a home and then somehow participating in, in the financial economy of, in, in one way or, yeah. or, or another. And if you can't do either one of those two things, you're not going to be able to diminish that, that, that gap. So, so where, you know, you'd said, you mentioned Amazon. So from a technology standpoint, there's the question of data and how do you utilize that data. Um, our, we've talked a lot about AI mm -hmm. as, as, as well. Um, I think the national conversation is very often about AI and, and, and how does it sort of entrench um, interests. Uh, I'm really curious to hear from you about how you view AI as a competitive um, factor uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in for a small business trying to grow, particularly for underserved uh, communities? Well, I think it has the opportunity to be, um, uh, to sort of democratize the, the, the playing field. Um, when I think about the root cause of why my father had that experience, um, um, we then sort of go to, you know, how do we um, solve that root cause? And so, we started by filing a FOIA with the Small Business Administration. We asked them for every record of, uh, a, on every loan that they'd backed since the year 2000. They sent us a CD-ROM uh, with about 1.2 million records on it, uh, which we enriched with data we'd purchased from other providers. And 
Um, the first step was sanitizing that data, um, which is to say, we want to uh, really scrutinize, interrogate the data to remove factors that might create bias when we're then training the model. <clears throat> so then once we trained the model, we then tested it using the same SBA data and found that we could accurately determine when an SBA loan would be charged off in 98.2% of the instances. So in this, in this case, we are relying exclusively on data, uh, um, objective data about the financial operating performance of the business to then be able to accurately render um, whether or not this business is likely to default on the loan or not. So in that case, um, imagine that model having been applied when my father was applying for that loan. Um, he would have been approved in all cases, I imagine. Um, so um, I don't see it uh, necessarily as um, um, competition. I see it as a tool to bring more people into the um, into banking, more people into um, uh, the ability to invest in their own enterprising nature. So <clears throat> when you look at your journey starting a business, I, I love it. It's like, how did you start your business? I foiled. <laughs> it's like nothing, nothing says. Uh, it's, it's, it's great. Um, uh, you know, there are lots of regulators who kind of watch um, and, and uh, in the audience and who participate. I mean, what do you think government needs to know about businesses like yours that they may not really be aware of and who may not really know uh, that you exist? Like, wh what kinds of things um, could the government do better? Oh, uh, are you giving me an opportunity to I, I was like, here's, here it is, here it is, here it is. Well, um, I started engaging with the FDIC, the IDFPR, which is the Illinois, um, the Illinois banking regulator, and the Federal Reserve at the beginning of 2020. So we have been um, in the process of applying for FDIC insurance and a charter for the better part of three years. Um, I believe the mental model that the regulators are accustomed to is um, community banking, branch focused, um, you know, full of bankers and tellers and loan officers. And I don't think their understanding of how technology can advance banking has uh, kept pace with the time. And I, I'll just give you one example of a question that um, our examiner asked, um, and this is after a, a couple years of going back and forth. Um, she said, um, okay, you don't have any branches. I get that. You don't have any branches. How will people access your banking services? Now, <laughs> I think on the face of it, it it's, it's, um, it's a crazy question to hear. It's absolutely bizarre because in a branch-based system, if you don't live within a certain radius of that branch, you're not accessing banking services. So you have lots of communities that exist in bank deserts um, that may not have relationships with the, with the bank. But I've seen, uh, I've seen, I don't think I've ever seen a person who doesn't have a smartphone. Everybody's got a smartphone. So, you know, instantly we go from this model where you can see that there's limitations in people's ability to access versus a, another model where it's, it, can, it can be quite ubiquitous in terms of people's ability to access the service. So um, I would say regulators have to be willing to take risks. Um, if we're going to build a truly resilient banking system that is taking on the, the, the promise of the best technologies available, we have to be willing to get behind models that are leveraging those uh, technologies in responsible ways. And, bolster them to the, to the greatest extent that we can.
Uh, you know, I love this, you know, for DC FinTech Week, what we've always tried to say, what I personally try to say is that everybody deserves to have access to the highest quality uh, financial technology and, and to be able to grow with those technologies in a safe way, in a resilient way, in a way that actually opens up opportunity. You are an example of that, and I will uh, make sure that I emphasize that throughout the rest of the conference. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. Siki, just listening to that recap, I just wanted to say thank you again for popping up on uh, DC FinTech Week, and also thank you for hopping on the podcast for another round of conversations. Chris, thank you for having me. All right, man. So financial inclusion, you know, it's one of those terms of art that still drive policy and obviously your own business and your own business model. But what do you think the term actually means? It's a perennial term. But in your view, what does what does financial inclusion mean for you, your business? And what do you think it should mean for policymakers? I think historically, there have been massive subgroups of the population that we've not invested in or realized the potential of these groups of people just from an economic growth perspective, GDP growth perspective. You know, there was a time when the workforce was almost entirely male. Um, you know, that's half of the population that's not generating GDP growth. And so when I think about financial inclusion, I think of it in similar terms. I think lots of people have, have, have had this experience where they've gone into a bank, maybe you're a woman-owned business, or maybe you're a minority-owned business, or maybe you're a business that operates in a, a rural area you know, that doesn't have quite the same level of banking coverage, and you don't get access to a loan, even though you're qualified, you're creditworthy. You know, your business is well run. You've been responsible about it. So you can think about that on the micro level. But when you bubble it up to the macro level, it's a meaningful percentage of the population that we're not investing in. You know, good businesses that aren't getting approved for loans when they're otherwise qualified for them. So then what does that mean for the missed opportunity from a from a you know economic growth perspective? So to me, it's including all parts of the society and realizing the potential of all parts of society and doing it in a way that is merit-based, you know, to the T. When you build off of this and think about what banking should mean and the place of technology, what's your thinking, especially in light of the future? You know, when I think of banks, to me, it's kind of a back office function. In a capitalistic society, they are the mechanism that distributes cash throughout the economy. And it's supposed to be efficient, meaning, you know, they get deposits and they have great notions of where that capital should go. But if qualified individuals, simply by virtue of gender or race or the geographical zip code they operate in, if they're not able to access that capital efficiently, then that means the system is broken. And I think the root cause of this break is the loan officer, not from anything intentional, at least always. I think it's just a familiarity thing. You know, if someone comes into the bank and we went to the same school or we were in the same fraternity or our kids go to the same elementary school, or maybe we, we pal around at the country club together. I don't know, whatever scenario, you know, I'm going to feel a lot more comfortable giving that person a loan. So to me, this is a solvable problem. It's a solvable problem. And I think the way you solve it is remove the loan officer from the equation and develop 
a mechanism for assessing the risk of a business that's built exclusively on observable financial and operating data about that business. You know, there's been a lot written on the rate of new bank formation in the United States, and I've always asked myself what that means for smaller banks, especially given new technologies, and frankly, the rate at which big banks are only becoming bigger. Can I just it, comment well, on that? I'm sure, sorry, please. I don't want to interrupt your flow, but this, you know, the, the level of adoption of technology that I think will be essential for the survival of banks in the future, future, the level of adoption among MDIs, but in particular, Black-owned banks, I think is really scary. It's scarily low. It's scarily low. And I'm not sure if the leadership of these banks are aware of the threat that's at their doors, but I've got to zoom up 40,000 feet and I've got to look at let's call it the last 100 years. 1920s, we're what, 130 Black-owned banks? Today, what are there? 17? 17. How do you go from 130 to 17? If that's not flashing red lights, I don't know what is. And so there has to be a you know some kind of triage to think about what's going on here. What's going on here? And so when I com- when I think about that dynamic and the adoption of new technologies to be able to adapt to how people are consuming banking today, I'm afraid. What do you think is, is the cause of that? I mean, do you think it's a policy failure in Washington, D.C.? Do you think it's just the inability for those Uh, community banks, minority depository institutions, and others to sort of access the know-how and that they don't, that, 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 you know, that information is just not getting to the relevant decision makers in real time. Because I I think that that, that you're really putting your, your, your finger on, on what is a, a, a huge challenge. And since you are running a bank, you know, what's, what's your perspective on, on, on what could be a driver or what are the possible drivers that we're seeing? I think all organizations are prone to inertia. So the problem of technological advancements and you know the pace of ad- of adopting these technological advancements for all small banks I think is low. But I think it's uniquely low for black owned MDIs and so I guess the question is, well, what makes it uniquely low? The reason MDIs exist is because minority communities historically have not gotten financing from existing banks. So their entire purpose, reason for being, is to accept deposits from and lend to those communities that's kind of the the opportunity, you know, as it's been historically defined. But I think it's inherently risky. Although I think it's um, it makes sense as a part of the solution to that problem, I think it's an inherently risky solution to the problem because your depositors and your borrowers are, for societal reasons, a riskier group of people. 
first to get fired and last to get hired. I don't know if you heard that growing up, you know, in a, in a downturn, <laughs> in a recession. So if you translate first to get fired, last to get hired to a bank's portfolio, what's happening to my deposits and what's happening to the health of my loan portfolio when people are the first to get fired and the last to get hired. So that to me creates a dynamic for the financial health and sustainability of the bank that is not good. And I think it probably leads to a higher failure rate. And I believe the solution to this is not to not lend to those communities or not to bank those communities. I think the solution is a diversified approach to your customer base. It can't just be this community. You know, it, it can't be defined in that way, at least, or I think it just creates more risk for, for the bank. And so if you don't have if you don't have the financial firepower to sustain yourself, you're probably going to struggle to have the financial firepower to invest in, you know, innovation within yourself, disrupting your own business model, you know, expanding, scaling beyond your own, your initial business model. So I think that's probably a part of what's, you know, operating there. Yeah, you know, you know, it's what's fascinating is like when you think about Silicon Valley Bank a little bit, you know, they had their problem of a highly sort of concentrated and homogeneous deposit base, right? So whatever the the picadillos of that deposit base was, they're going to be, you know, feel it more than than other banks, you know, given their portfolio. And a lot of the community banks and the MDIs, what they do really well is their ability to kind of know their relevant communities. And, and that is a tremendous asset, especially for for people who are are underserved, right? But but to your point, you know, the question then is, especially if you if you have to scale and you have to get big, and and I personally kind of get the sense that that challenge of getting big is is one that's not always necessarily emphasized, uh, uh, even from a policy perspective, that, that you have to have a certain size of deposits in order to be competitive and to be able to invest in technology and other and other things. But there's this little bit of a conflict, right, or or, or a tension, right, between on the one hand the necessity to scale, right, and for whatever reason maybe either the lack of capital or lack of technology, and yet this competitive advantage that you have in your ability to kind of talk to your your people on on the ground, and I think that you know Washington D.C. in particular has had lots of of, of challenges. In my view, you know, they, they kind of emphasize the one point and they recognize the competitive advantage points, but they aren't necessarily engaged on the technology front in terms of how they think about their solutions. When, when you come to Washington, either for DC FinTech Week or just in terms of conversations that you may be having with any of our regulators, I mean, what do you, what do you think policymakers get right and what do you think they get wrong or at least need to rethink? when it comes to technology and smaller and emerging banks? If Congresswoman Maxine Waters is listening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or, or her staff, there's probably someone who is. Or, or her staff. I, I believe the receptiveness to new technologies is incredibly low. And... I'm speaking from my own experience working with the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, and the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation, which is the lead banking regulator in Illinois. 
three years of pursuit and a lot of resources went into explaining how to deliver banking services using technology. You know, to me, banking is an age-old industry. It's, you know, it's pretty simple. It's two sides of one coin, lending and deposits. You know, we complicate it with a bunch of ratios, which are important for risk and, you know, financial stewardship, but it's a pretty simple banking model. To me, the delivery mechanism historically has been branch networks. You know, you just pop open a branch in a community, people come in and you grow, you pop open a branch in a different community and you just sort of scale that way. And and that's how it's been done in the past. Using technology, your phone, to deliver that same service is, it's a shift in paradigm, but ultimately, fundamentally, you're doing the exact same thing. It's just a different mechanism. And I think regulators are, at least in my engagement, particularly with the FDIC, I think it's been really difficult to sort of um, pierce that old understanding, that current understanding of what banking is. And I think it's to, to the detriment of the banking system. It's I think it's absolutely to the detriment of the banking system. You know, if the mandate is a sound banking system, I'm questioning it. I'm questioning. I mean, last year, we had Silicon Valley Bank, we had First Republic, we had Signature Bank. My stats might be off, but I think these were the second, third, and fourth largest bank failures in all of American history in the span of a year, in the span of a year. And I don't want to be petty, but the FDIC is going through a lot right now in terms of what's being exposed about how their employees are treated what's being exposed about the ongoings of this organization. And I just have to ask myself, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just have to ask, but I, I just don't know. To be completely honest, I don't know what, what to make of it, Chris. I don't know what to make of it. Well, Siggy, I do know what to make of you. You are a passionate leader and a thinker in the field. You are someone who deserves to be on the front lines of banking, and you deserve your charter now. I hope, indeed, our friends at the FDIC are listening, and we will spread the word here in Washington. So thanks so much for jumping on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I have to admit, listening to people talk about Washington as a Washingtonian can be a little depressing though I also have to admit that I'm not entirely surprised. The city is full of ideas, but for some reason, our system has a bad tendency of squashing some of the most promising for reasons rarely associated with the public interest. What this year's election will do to that conversation is anyone's guess, though I do have a hunch that in an age when the age of both leading candidates is coming under the microscope, the ability to look to the future and not just the past might be not only the way to win the middle, but also perhaps an uneasy American majority. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>